go. Yes. Drone shot. Drone shot. All right. I know. That's funny. Um, we love it. We love it. Since we're going into a new section here where Paul's taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, then we're, we're wanting to highlight that about we have the ends of York County that you are, you are all a part of. And since you're all a part of it, we want to... Uh, want to open our minds and hearts to the reality of that and start thinking about how we can take the gospel all over. Now, before we get started, I have, uh, is it hot in here? Is it hot in here? I can, all right. Um, uh, I have an announcement and then uh, we'll pray and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Hey, Jordan, turn on the air. Jordan, to get us hooked up. All right, there we go. I know that's weird, but there's no reason for us to be hot the whole time. We take care of it. All right. Um, first, uh, happy Super Bowl Sunday. It's the Lord's Day first, but, you know, secondarily, at least we can have happy Super Bowl Sunday. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? Falcons? Y'all care? Patriots? If it's not the Panthers, I, I don't know. So anyway, I, I, think, I think it's probably going to be the Patriots, although I wouldn't mind seeing the Falcons win. That's my thought. All right. So before we get into, uh, before we get into the text, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it. We'll be in Acts chapter 15. I have an announcement. So about uh, two weeks ago, maybe three, uh, we did a vote for the, for the finance team to be able to negotiate <clears throat> with the state on the building that we, we were allowed to go up to 475, but we wanted to talk them down uh, to 450. This past week, the city, the state, I should say, has accepted our offer at 450. So we talked them down. So Remedy Church is officially getting a building. We will be in there. Six to nine months, depending on construction time. I invite you all just to constantly ask TJ um, when we're getting in. He's the uh, construction guy. Don't do that, actually. He'll get annoyed. But um, we'll be here uh, till sometime around September or so. Uh, and then we'll, we'll be moving and have a permanent home. It's a good location. It really is. There's not a, really a whole lot of churches around there. It's kind of halfway between downtown and, and uh, Northwestern High School, right there on, on West Main. So uh, right across the street, there's like an apartment complex that has somewhere around 1,000 or 1,200 units. Um, there's, there's all kinds of houses all around. And there's some churches there, but not really in that one place that we're going to be. So it's super exciting news to be able to move there. It's just five minutes from campus, so there's lots of, lots of cool things about it. So, um, and I'm actually, my new house is going to be five minutes from there. I'm moving to that side, so that worked out convenient for me as well. Um, anyway. Uh, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Like I said, if you have any questions about the building, please always ask. You can feel free to ask me at any time. But we'll be moving there hopefully in the next six to nine months. Um, I've, I've got a meeting set up with, with TJ and the architect and the loan guy this coming week to talk about some of the next phases. So that's what's going on. Anyway, um, back over to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be there. Um, and uh, we're going to start at, at Acts chapter 15. There's a little bit of a, a, a shift in the narrative c compared to what we've been seeing. If you've been with us, you know that Acts chapter 13 and 14 was their first missionary journey. And now they're coming back home. There's a little bit of shift in the narrative because of the things that have happened. And really all the way back to Acts chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. The things that have happened, I'll talk about that in a second, has brought us to this point here in Acts chapter 15 where they need to discuss what's going on. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll look at Acts chapter 15. We'll be in verses 1 through 21 today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love, your mercy. Thank you that you have provided for us your word. You didn't have to, but you did. You provided your word for us so that we can know you. Uh, and in your grace, you've taught us in your word 
how we can know you through Christ. And so we, we thank you so much for that, Lord. We ask that as we look at this particular text of a group of men that lived 2,000 years ago that discuss how Gentiles can now be Christians, that we'll realize there's lots <clears throat> of applications for us right now today in our church, in Remedy Church, and that we would think through those things and that we would apply those things to our community groups, we would apply those things to our church, we would apply those things to our evangelism, and that uh, you would use this text to also enhance our love for Christ as we think and meditate on the fact that you have actually cleansed our hearts. For those that trust Christ by faith and Christ, uh, faith alone, you've cleansed our hearts completely. And so we pray that that good news would also wash over us afresh and that we would just be amazed by your good news of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Chapter 15 is a, a pretty big uh, watershed moment in the, in the book of Acts because they've had to figure out now the consequences, if you will, like of chapters 10 through 14. So in, in chapter 10, Peter had gone over to Cornelius and he had led him to Christ. Cornelius was a Gentile, though he was sympathetic to Judaism. He was a Gentile. And so they're trying to figure out what are we going to do with this, these Gentile people. And then after that, uh, in Acts chapter 11... You have uh, Barnabas who had gone up to Antioch, and as he went to Antioch, he had planted a church there. Let's go ahead and put up the map so everybody can kind of see what we're talking about. So all, Christianity started in Jerusalem. We know in Acts 1-8 it's going to go to Jerusalem and then go to Judea and Samaria, and then all of a sudden it says to the ends of the earth. Well, as we're getting to chapter 13 where it hits the ends of the earth, in chapter 11, Barnabas had gone up here to Antioch and helped plant a church. He went over to Tarsus and got Saul and brought him back, and they planted this church. And now where all the apostles have have stayed in Jerusalem, that's kind of the apostles' home base, that's Peter and, and James and these kinds of guys, Paul and Barnabas have made this their home base, Antioch, the very first church plant that was a Gentile church plant, and this Gentile church plant funds Barnabas and Saul's first missionary journey. So what, what's going on now is, since Peter has led Gentiles to Christ in Acts chapter 10, in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas goes up to Antioch, and he leads Gentiles to Christ, and then in chapters 13 and 14, they go on this missionary journey, more more Gentiles are coming to know Christ. As they get back, the Christian church at this particular time, who is historically Jewish, um, always has to think of themselves, or has to think to themselves, okay, we've got a, a, a religion or a, a founding of, of Christianity that's always been historically Jewish, and now we've got this Christian community that's historically Jewish, but we have these Gentiles coming into this faith. And now we have to figure out how are we going to get Jews and Gentiles to be a part of the same family, how should the Gentiles join this family? How should the Gentiles, by what means, what's necessary for them to be a part of this Christian community that's historically Jewish? What's necessary for them? Do they need to look at some of the Jewish practices that we used to do and do those things as well to really be a correct Christian the way historically we're supposed to understand it? And so... Acts chapter 15, where we get to, where it says the Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas have discussed this some. They're going to take a group of men. They're going to go down to Jerusalem, or to, the, to, the big, to the big city where all the heavy hitties are. And they're all going to get together and they're going to decide. Uh, what's needed for all these Gentiles that have gotten saved over chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. What's needed for them to be a part of our community? What do they need to do? What's necessary? It's a pretty big, important uh, point because... They've, they're praising the Lord that Gentiles are coming to know Christ. They're just not sure if they're, if they're coming to know Christ 
um, but also authentically becoming part of the Christian community because they're not necessarily adhering to the Jewish practices, the Jewish practices of uh, law observance, the Jewish practices of circumcision, the Jewish practices of these dietary kinds of uh, restraints. They're saying, well, those are the things we used to do historically as Jews, and we believe in Christ, but we, we keep practicing those things. But Gentiles who don't even understand that stuff, they're not doing that stuff. Do they need to do it to be a part of the authentic community? Acts chapter 15 is the discussion of that. And you're thinking, well, that's, that seems really relevant to me right now. I don't really have a whole lot of stuff going on this week. But, but besides the Super Bowl and, and life, that discussion's relevant. I promise you it is. It really is. First off, you're all Gentiles. So that's going to apply to you in that manner, right? I don't see anybody that, that wouldn't qualify as a Gentile. So, but the, the inclusion into the Christian community and what laws the Christian community makes for inclusion is important. Because this is the, their law. But we can make those things today. We can require, as part of our Christian community, our church, in our minds, certain things that we want people to look like or do or act like or, or think and part, to be a part of ours. And we need to ask that question. What is that? Are there, are there more things or is there just one thing? So there's a lot of application that we can have. So... Um, First thing, let's look at verses 1 through 5. This is the point of issue. This is the actual issue. You can see it uh, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Num point number 1. Point number 1. The point of issue. But some men <coughs> came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you have people that were coming to Antioch, because Paul's still in Antioch, and saying, yes. Faith in Christ is necessary. However, you need to also not just be, believe in Jesus, but you need to, as it says, adhere to the customs of Moses, the Old Testament law, and all its requirements of dietary laws and circumcision, etc. You, you need to adhere to all those things as well. And if you do those things, then you're a Christian. Then you're an authentic part of the Christian community. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them and, or in debate with them. And the Bible uses that no small or they stayed for no little time. That's a Hebrew idiom. Like we say, an idiom is just like, it's raining cats and dogs. It's, we know it's not, right? But we know it's raining hard. Hebrew idiom, the way they say it is they had no small. It means they had a big debate. They, they like to say it wasn't small, but it was really big. You can also see that even in the previous chapter. After Paul... And Barnabas had, had finished their first missionary journey when they came back to Antioch. At verse 27 in chapter 14, it said, they arrived, they gathered the whole church together. They declared all that God had done. And they told them how God had now opened this door to the Gentiles. And that's what's making this discussion happen. And then in verse 28, look, and they remained no little time with the disciples. That means they remained a long time with the disciples. And so when we're over here in chapter 15, these, these people came in who said, Yes, faith in Christ is necessary, but not just faith in Christ, but you also have to have adherence to the law of Moses. Those people are called Judaizers, or the circumcision party is another way. So they believe in Jesus, but they say, in order to be saved, to be a part of this community, you have to trust in Christ, yes, but you also have to attach to that adherence to the law of Moses. They're called the Judaizers because they idolize Judaism also, and make it equal with the gospel, with the good news of Christ, the, his, the story and message of his death, burial, and resurrection. So, Paul and Barnabas, when they hear that, when they're in Antioch and the Judaizers come, they have a huge debate with them. I mean, they, are, they do not believe in this, Paul and Barnabas, what the Judaizers hold. They don't think that that's necessary. They say, 
Only faith in Christ is necessary to be a part of the Christian community. You don't have to hold to the Old Testament law. You don't have to do those things in order to be saved. So here's what happens. No small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go. I know it says up to Jerusalem. If you're looking at your map, here is Antioch and here is Syria. And you're like, that's not up, that's down. That's because they don't have you know, topography and like, maps like we have. Because for them, this is a mountainous region and this is down in the plains. And so they're going up to Jerusalem. So that's why it says up. Because they're not looking at like, maps like we are. Because <laughs> um, it was 2,000 years ago. Anyway, so here we are. So it says they were appointed. So Paul and Barnabas have this major discussion in Antioch, and they realize the Judaizers are wrong, and they need to get it worked out with the major players back in, in Jerusalem so that everybody, and uh, especially the apostles, those who are considered the, kind of the, the fathers of Christianity in the first century, we all need to get together, we all need to have this discussion, and we need to make it official. So we're going to have this council at Jerusalem so that everybody knows what we think is right when it comes to uh, faith in Christ and how do we <clears throat> incorporate or bring in Gentiles into the Christian community. So Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenician Samaria. That's, the, that's basically the region between those two cities. They went through there of all the Gentiles and they brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Now, I want to remind you, the missionary journey on Acts chapter 13 and 14 that, that Paul and Barnabas had gone on, they had left Antioch, they went up into the Gentile area and came back to Antioch. And at the end of chapter 14, they told everybody, this is what God did, this is awesome. But they haven't gone down to Jerusalem to tell them the story too. So when they get to Jerusalem, they tell them the story of Acts chapter 13 and 14. That's what you're seeing right here in verses 4 and 5. It says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by all the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done to them. So like, they're like, woohoo, that's awesome, amazing, God's doing work. And then in verse 5 it says, But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, that's the same people from verse 1 that, that say uh, circumcision is necessary. That's the Judaizers, that's the circumcision party, however you want to call it. It says that those people said it's necessary to circumcise them uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses in order for them to be a Christian. So that's what, you've got kind of two competing thoughts here on how to incorporate this new community of people, the Gentiles, into the Christian community, and they need to figure out how is it going to work. Now, the Judaizers are, are the opposition that I've told you about, and I want to make sure we know who they are. So we, uh, Paul writes the letter of Galatians. It's just, you know, like four books to the right, maybe five. This, this letter to the, is called To the Galatians. He writes, it's the most aggressive letter he's ever written in the New Testament. Most of them are like, you're awesome, I love you, I can't, I can't. Can't imagine like life without you. When I think about you, my heart's on flame, like Philippians, etc. When Galatians, he just launches into a rebuke and just basically for six chapters just destroys them because they don't understand the gospel. He it's really aggressive. I you should read it this week, uh, the letter of Galatians. Um, he he indicts them on a lot of things, but it's because of this message of the Judaizers. So who are the Judaizers? This is who they are. They're also known as the circumcision party. They were not opposed, and we need to make sure we understand this, they were not opposed to the Gentile mission. They wanted Gentiles to be saved. They were rejoicing that not only Jews but Gentiles were being saved. They weren't opposed to that. However, um, they were determined that the Gentiles must now come under this umbrella of the Jewish church and that Gentile believers not only need to submit to Jesus in baptism, 
but also they need to be like those who are Jewish who are getting converted and also submit to circumcision and law observance. And so that's who the Judaizers was. They wanted to supplement, this sounds so backwards, right, when we hear it now because of the Reformation and where we are. They wanted to supplement the gospel with the law. They wanted for Moses to complete what Jesus had begun. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? They wanted Moses, the law, to complete what Jesus had, had done. But, but what's circumcision? Um, you should ask your mom later at home. Uh, but I'll give you a little bit of an idea. If you're a little kid, ask your mom. But for, for those of you who not, might know what it is, I'll give you the history of it. So back in Genesis chapter 17, God came to Abraham and said, you're going to be the father of my people. And since you're going to be the father of my people, I'm going to choose you and all of your descendants to be my children. All of these people, all of these people, all of them, they're not going to be my children. You're going to be my children, Abraham. And so Abraham was the father of the Israelites and everybody that came from him, from his, from his uh, family, are the Israelites. Well, in Acts, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 17, God came to Abraham in, in chapter 17, and verse 1 says, Abraham was 99 years old when he appeared to him as, as Abram. And if you skip down to verse 9, God says to Abram, what we need to do since you're going to be my people is we're going to have a sign that you're my people so that, so that um, everyone in your family is going to make a covenant with me and there's a clear sign that you're my people. And it says in verse 9, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you must be circumcised. So it, it says on the eighth day is whenever this would happen for every baby. But for Abraham, it happened when he was 99 years old. So, I mean, that's a bad deal. That's a bad deal for him. No question whatsoever. But to think of that, that's the bad deal for Gentiles. So think about it. You're, you're, you're a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old man, and you're coming to know Christ in this first century. They're telling you, hey, come to Christ. Be, be, for, be forgiven of all your sin. And then they tell them, and also just to let you know, you need to be circumcised. And so these Gentile men in the first century are like, you know, I like your message, but that extra thing you're adding makes me want to say no thanks. It makes me want to be like, I don't think I want to do that. That's not, my, that's not my deal. And so, I mean, obviously, it's, it's making some men, Gentile men, kind of retreat from the freedom of forgiveness in Christ. They're driving, this is bad, people away from salvation with this extra stipulation. That's, in their mind, the Judaizers, required for salvation. So Paul is very aggressively against this. So if you have, you know, if you want to, you can flip over to the letter of Galatians. And this is, this is what Paul says. Um, for him, it's an absolute gospel issue. You're, in his mind, you're, you're pushing people away from salvation. So in verses 1 through 5, it's, it's normal Paul, hey, in Galatians chapter 1. Normal Paul, hey, you know exchange a couple pleasantries, and then it isn't like niceness after that. Verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you and the grace of Christ, and now returning, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but some of you who are troubled and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even if we and an angel should come to heaven and preach to you a different gospel contrary to the one that I have preached to you, if anybody comes and says anything else besides salvation by grace alone through faith alone, and says, through circumcision, he says, he should be accursed. And let me say it again. I want to make sure. If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one I received, let him be accursed. And this anathema, this accursed means go to hell forever because they don't know what they're talking about. And then he launches in through um, just an excoriating <laughs> letter 
throughout, throughout where he, he tells them over and over that adherence to the law of Moses, specifically circumcision, is not necessary. And then in chapter 5, he gets me- mega aggressive with them. Um, so that's the message that he has. Now, I want to point out one other thing. The letter to the Galatians has some controversy surrounding it about whenever it was written. There's these, you can go Google this later if you want. There's something called the South Galatian theory and the North Galatian theory. And that basically just try to figure out, um, the answer is, Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians. And when he wrote it, it, we want to know, did he write it before Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council? Or did he write it after Acts chapter 15? As like, we know the answer, so here it is. There's good arguments for both. There's maybe some defending against both. But I think he wrote the letter and, and everything that had happened before he went to Acts chapter 15. So uh, before he went to the Jerusalem Council. So he did, uh, he did that first missionary. Put up the map for me. He did that first missionary journey. From here he went over. And this is the region of Galatia. You can see it right here, Galatia. So he did the first missionary journey. And when he got back, he thought, I need to make sure I address with those, letter, with those people that I, that I just wrote. Because Galatia, by the way, is not a city. It's a region. It's the, the letter to the Galatians, not like Ephesus, the city, but to an area. So he had just gone through Galatia. And he says, okay, I need to make sure all these people, since these Judaizers are coming here and telling them that, that uh, circumcision is necessary, I'm going to write this letter. And I'm going to tell them that it's not so that they understand all that kind of gets buttoned up. And he, he also has a conversation with Peter and James. And so that they're all on like, they're all on, a, on the same page. So that finally, when we come down to Acts chapter 15 to Jerusalem, and they have, they have this discussion, everything's done. That's my thought. That's my view. Again, you can go either way. It's not, you know, your opinion on that is not gospel. So anyway, um, that's what I think. And here's the other reason why. Because in Galatians chapter 2, Uh, If you look at verse 11, verse 11, there's a controversy that happens, or this controversy that happens, Paul has this conversation uh, in chapter 11 with both Peter and Barnabas, trying to help them understand that they're wrong. So in chapter 2, starting at verse 11, he says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch. So there's some point when Cephas, or Peter, came from Jerusalem up to Antioch and starts discussing some of these things. Now, if you remember, in Acts chapter 10, Peter went to the Gentiles and hung out with them and ate with them and ate their food. Like, it was no big deal for him to partake because he knows food is food. You can eat whatever you want. And it says that whenever, what happened, some of those who are Judaizers, they came from James, the the Lord's brother, came in there and they saw that. Peter's like, oh, I'm not eating that food. He he retreats back and he's like, "That, that wasn't me, I wasn't doing that. And he goes back over to the Jewish ideals and eating only what's kosher and not eating that, that stuff. And when Paul hears this, like, he gets all up in his junk. He's like, you're being a hypocrite, Peter. Like, all of a sudden you're eating, and when other people come around, you retreat, not like you weren't doing it. This is what happens in chapter 2, verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, Paul is not a gentle man. He doesn't strike me as gentle, right? So for him to get up in Peter's face, this is like the head guy. That's pretty bold. Anyway, he says, I, stu- I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men from James came, before that Judaizer group came to where we were, he was eaten with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party or the Judaizers from saying stuff. And the rest of the Jews did the exact same thing. All of Peter's friends are like, yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't eat steak or pig anymore. Bacon's bad. We, we hate it. We, we don't want it anymore. Like, no, you like it. Come on, be, be real. 
And so here it says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along, and watch this, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas started acting like Peter. And Paul's like, okay, listen, this is a gospel issue. You're saying that a part of the, being a part of the Christian community is faith in Christ plus no bacon, plus being circumcised, plus adherence to these laws. You're wrong. You're adding stuff to the gospel, and you're, you're messing with these Gentiles' minds. So he opposes them all. And says, but when I saw that their conduct, look at this, this is why I say it's a gospel issue, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, but you're adding something to it. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're eating their food, and that's fine. Why are you forcing them to start adhering to these things? Be consistent, Peter. So that's a pretty strong statement. And what we're going to see here in, in chapter 15 is Peter's going to stand up and, say, and back everything Paul says, <laughs> right? So in my mind, that means they've already had the conversation. They've already had the conversation, and even James. So there's got to be some place and some time <coughs> where Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James are all going to get together and decide what the right issue is, decide the answer, and we get to chapter 15. Internally, they've worked out the answer. Because when we get here, if you look at verse 7, Peter talks. If you look at verse 12, Paul and Barnabas talk. And if you look at verse 13, James talks. So the big heavy hitters give their, 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 their thoughts on what's going on. So that's the first thing, is trying to figure out the gospel and making sure that they are adhering to the strict, strict adherence of the gospel because it's a big deal. It's a, it's a huge debate. It's not a small debate. And they need to get the gospel right. And they can't just let people decide for themselves. That's what we would do today. Have you ever seen the movie? It doesn't matter. They all do the same thing. You ever seen the movie where, you know, Jack Bauer's right here, and he's, he's got his comm, and he's talking to Chloe or whoever it is, and he's got the bomb, and it's going to go off in like seven seconds, and he's got to cut the blue or the red wire. He's like, which one is it? If she just goes, oh, whichever one you want, <laughs> that's bad news, right? It's not whatever one I want. It's, it's one of these, and I've got to cut the right one, or my face is going to explode off, right? I've got to know which one it is. It isn't figure it out for yourself. However you feel right now, we can't do that with the gospel. However you feel you need to be saved. No, it's one or the other, right? It's Christ or not Christ. you got to tell me what it is. And th- they, ha- they, they feel the danger of just saying, ah, it's okay. You can, just, you can add that stuff. No, gospel is the gospel. And it's, it's not however you feel today. It's this is the message and you can't change it. Christ alone. So it's a big issue that's happening here. Um, they had already had the debate internally. When they get there, they're going to figure out what's going on. And they have to, as they get to this council, they have to ask these big picture questions, which we've already talked about. But the big picture question is, is the sinner, that's all of us, saved by sheer grace of God in and through Christ crucified when he or she believes and, and flees to Christ for refuge? Are they saved by that? Has Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection done everything necessary for salvation? Or are we saved partly through the grace of Christ and then our own good works? Is it both of those? Um, is justification or the declaration of God by faith alone, or is a mixture of faith and works, a mixture of grace and law, a mixture of Jesus and Moses? Are the Gentiles now just another sect of Judaism? You know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and now, you know, this Jewish national family? Or are they trusting in Christ and now being incorporated into the multinational family, one family, the Christian community? That's the question they have to ask. These are the things they need to figure out. Now, before we go to the next section at the actual meeting and what they talk about, I want to stop 
and put forward for us the direct application questions we can ask just about that first section. Number one, are we at remedy? Because uh, the question they have to figure out is how do you incorporate these people into the family? Are we at remedy easily incorporating people into our community? Are we doing a good job at incorporating people into our community? Or are we unknowingly adding things for people they have to do in order to be a part of our community? We won't, we won't do what they did, right? We won't do circumcision like they did in the first century. But we can still do things from our 21st century southern legalistic thing. Oh, you want to be a part of this church community? Well, you have to make sure this. Is it just the gospel and the gospel alone, and we let the Holy Spirit and sanctification take place after that, or are we adding things? you got to be a part of our church, but no radar movies. you got to be a part of our church, but you can't cut your hair that way. you got to be a part of our church, but you can't wear those clothes. you got to be part of our church, but you can't drink that. Like, do we add things? Now, I'm not saying sinful things. Like, if they're like, you got to be a part of our church, but you can't cheat on your wife. Like, that's normal. Like, that's one that we would add. Like, that's, of course that's part. But the gray area, conscience issues, we can't add. We can't add that. So are we incorporating people into our community and not unwittingly drawing necessarily lines that are gray areas? Are we doing that well? Think about your community groups. Are you inviting of all people, of all colors, of all nationalities, of all mindsets, as long as we're centered around the gospel, we're, we're letting gray areas be gray areas and not making those sharp edges. Next one. And this is more not just community-based, but, but, but really more individually-based for you. Think about this individually. Are you keeping uh, the gospel pure in your own mind and heart day to day? Are you unknowingly adding things to the gospel, or are you living out day by day realizing your only hope is Christ? Are you unknowingly day by day thinking, God's really going to be happy with me if, if, you, if there's anything that goes on that, you're adding something to the gospel. It's God is completely thrilled with me, not because of anything I've done. He's declared me righteous, he's declared me holy because of what Jesus has done. If you say, but, he is pretty happy with me about, and now I have a better standing with him because of, then you're, you're distorting the gospel and not keeping it pure in your own heart. Now, of course you want to do whatever that is, but not in order to have a right standing, but because you already have a right standing. Those are tremendously two different things. So those are the two kind of application questions right here as we go. Now let's look at the debate. Um, the debate in Jerusalem, number two, the debate in Jerusalem. And as we get to the debate, I've already pointed out, you're going to have three people that are going to speak. You've got uh, point number two, uh, the next slide, Peter, Paul, and James. Next slide, you can put it up, boom, there it is, Peter, Paul, and James, and Ringo. All right, I'm just kidding. Those are Ringo. And those aren't even the Beatles. All right, so here it is. Um, number two, the debate at Jerusalem. Now, we don't get the discussion. We don't get to hear the discussion. What we get to hear is after the big discussions happen, the summary statements of the most important people there. So look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. <laughs> So I want to hear the debate part. Write that part, Luke. Look, Luke doesn't do that. Luke's like, there's just a lot of debate. They figured it out. And here's the summary statements when it's over. The most important people are going to stand up. And they're going to say, this is what I think. This is what I think. This is what I think. Peter's going to stand up and say something. Paul's going to stand up and say something with Barnabas. 
And James is going to stand up. That's Jesus' brother James. He's going to stand up, and there's your answer. So that's what we get. We don't get to hear the debate part. But we're going to take each one of those guys one at a time so you can see what they say. Um, Peter stands up. Uh, Peter stood up and said to them. Now, I want to point this out. Um, this is the last time we will hear of or see Peter's name written in Acts at all. From this point over, he's gone. You know, frowny face emoji. Like, that's it. No more Peter. If you love Peter, it's all gone. But here we are at verse 7. This is the last thing Peter's going to say to us. Um, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, now, he is going to be right in accord with Paul, which means they've had this discussion already. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's Acts chapter 10. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. He, having, here's the gospel, here it is, here's the gospel, here's, here's what God has done for you. In Christ, you, every believer in this room, let the, the beauty of this little five phrase uh, wash over you and make you affectionately loving with what Christ has done. Cleanse their hearts by faith. This is what he's done. All your sin that you've ever done or ever will do, cleansed in your heart by faith. How? Well, we'll see that there in verse 11, but that's what he's done. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor us have been able to, he been able to bear? We knew, what he's saying is, we knew that we couldn't keep the law in the Old Testament, so he gave us the gospel, and now these Gentiles, you're telling them, good, go keep the law that we couldn't keep. You're putting a yoke on their neck that even we couldn't bear. Come on. And here's, here's the good news. Here's, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. How have you been cleansed in your heart by faith? By believing that, we'll be, that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ today, you've not been cleansed of your sin. That's how you'll be saved. That's how you'll be saved right now. Trust in Christ by believing in your heart that you are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he gave his life for you. You trust in that, you repent of your sin, and now you will be cleansed in your heart, completely forgiven forever. Now, let's look at Peter's message. He has three main points that he has. First, he hearkens back or, to his memories in Acts chapter 10 and says, I, I was used by God in the beginning to go tell the Gentiles. And then he makes three points. Number one, God has made a free choice to save the Gentiles. That's something you can internalize right now. God did not have his back against the wall and was not forced to love you, care for you, and choose you. All of you, all of us, God has made a free, loving choice to look at you, love you, and save you because he loves you and cares for you. No one coerced him into saving you. It says it right there. That God, may, verse 7, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. By the mouth of the Gentiles you should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God has done that for you as well, not just in the first century. Beautiful, beautiful. The next thing is this. Not only that, he makes a second statement in verse 8. That God's the heart knower that gives you the Holy Spirit. And, who knows them, uh, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He knows your heart. He knows every thought, every inclination. He knows what your soul desires. He knows the depths of who you are. 
go back to the, to the first point, and still chose you. And still chose you. And not only that, he gave you the Holy Spirit. And he makes no distinction in how he gives the Holy Spirit to, to the Jewish people, to the Gentiles. He doesn't give the Jewish people like the full Holy Spirit and the Gentiles like three quarters. It's not what he does. He says he makes no distinction. He gives you all the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. This is amazing. And then he makes this third statement by saying there's no distinction in how he saves freely. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. He doesn't treat those who are Jewish and those who aren't any differently. He loves them all with no distinction whatsoever, which is what we saw when Peter was, uh, was given that from uh, God in Acts chapter 10. So these three amazing statements are not just for the first century, but for you. God loves you more than you could see. He made a, he made a free choice to save you. No one coerced him. Not only that, he's the heart knower and still chose you because I know he knows my heart and it's, it scares me that he still wants to, he still wants to choose me, right? Because we're probably the same. Our hearts can be incredibly wicked and he still chooses us. And not only does he know us, he gives us the Holy Spirit and he draws no distinction between these children and these children. If you're a parent, you understand that. I draw no distinction between, my kids are always asking me, he's your favorite, he's your favorite, who's your favorite, I'm your favorite. And I said, I love you all first place, all six of you. You're all tied in a six-way tie for number one. And if I have a seven, you'll all be tied in a first place tie in a seven. Like, they're like, okay, that's not true. You love Liam more. Like, no, I really don't. You really, I really don't. They all think that. It's just because he's three, you know, and he's remarkably cute. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I love them all the same. And this is what he's saying. Those who have been adopted into the family are no different than my own children, the one that have been born in my family. I love the adopted child, the Gentile, just as much as my own flesh and blood children. I draw no distinctions. If you're an adopted family, you can even understand that, that metaphor even better. So, the first one is Peter. The next one is Paul. Now, you, you might look and see, Peter gets a lot of verses, James gets a lot of verses, Paul gets one verse. You're like, what's going on? Remember, Luke is summarizing this after the fact, and Luke's just like, I don't have to write a lot. See Acts chapter 13 and 14. <laughs> like, I already wrote a whole bunch about Paul and Barnabas. But here we go, verse 12. And the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas is listed first in Paul, because usually it's the opposite, because Barnabas is so well known in Jerusalem. Like, he's... He's just a man in Jerusalem. So Barnabas, because he's so respected, and Paul, and they stood up. We don't know which one, but they both stood up and they talked. And they said, you remember the signs and wonders that God did through us, um, that God had done through them and among the Gentiles. Basically, they give the report of what they saw happen in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And that's all they say. <clears throat> but I want you to hear this, uh, because there's something really key. John Stott makes a, a, an important distinction in, chapter, in verse 12. And listen, this is huge for you. If any of you struggle with thinking that the Lord God doesn't love you, I want you to hear this. He says that the Gentiles now have now gone from God working with them to through them. The working with them is, in the Old Testament, I've got my people and I've got these Gentiles. And so they're really kind of in the way. I'm working in spite of them. But these are my people and I'm working, with, I'm working um, through my, these people. But I'm kind of working with the Gentiles to do stuff. And he says, now, Gentiles, you're incorporated into the family. I'm never kind of, I'm not like working in spite of you and you're around and kind of my way. I'm not working with you. I'm working through you. You are my people. I do love you now, and I'm working through you. It's the key difference is God doesn't work now in spite of us. He works because of his love for us now. So it's an amazing difference that's happened. It's not meta with, it's dia, through. Those are the Greek words, which is a huge difference. 
He's telling them that he's working through us. And so hear that. God is not working in spite of you. You're not in his way in his major plans. He's working through you because he loves you. He loves you with no distinction of any other of his children. He loves you just the same as all the children of God you think might be better than you. He loves you. The next thing is James. James stands up. James is the moderator, likely, of the Jerusalem Council. He's known as James the Just. Pretty awesome nickname to have. Not because he's a judge, but because of his... It's not, it's not because he's so just of the way he thinks about situations, but instead because of his godly righteousness of the way he lives. He lives justly. He lives righteously. So before we even look at it, listen. Don't you want people to think of you that way? When they think of James, they think, that guy right there is a godly, righteous man. Man, he really is righteous. Not pharisaical righteousness. In love with Jesus righteousness. I know you want people to think of you that way. I, I do. So let's live that way. We've already been declared that, Philippians 3.16. Let us hold true to what we've already attained. Godly righteousness. When people think of you, they should think of wow, he or she. It's not pharisaical, but man, they are godly in their righteousness. They really do love Christ. So this is what he stands up and says and says and says. <laughs> All right. Here's what he says. Um, Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. So he's the, he's the moderator. He's kind of like, my voice is the last voice. I'm going to say the summary. And what I say, this is it. This is what we're doing. And everybody's going to be like, that's right, because you're Jesus' brother. That's what we're doing. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. And they do. Simeon has related. That's just, he's using the Hebrew form. That's, that's Peter. He's talking about Peter. Peter's got all kinds of names. Rock, Peter, Simeon, Cephas. All right, pick one. Let's stay with the same one. I can't ever follow you. All right. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. He just talked about how he saw the Gentiles in Acts 10. Watch this. Watch this key phrase. To take from them a people for his name. We're coming back to that. That's a major statement. And with these words of the prophets agreed, just as it's written. He's going to quote Amos chapter 9 here. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by his name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. And then he says in verse 19, therefore my judgment, judgment's a pretty good word. It's, uh, it's, it's really more like my conviction. This is, this is what I believe to be true now. It's not I'm like what I judge and I think it's true. It's, this is my conviction. This is what I believe to be absolutely true. My conviction on this matter is this, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not make them uh, adhere to the law. We should not require circumcision. But now he's going to do this little reverse thing, which is pretty amazing. He's not going to require it, but he's going to say, this is what you should do. Gentiles, you should not be circumcised in order to be a part of the faith. But I would put back on you Gentiles that you could do this. This is what he says. But we should write to them to abstain from the sexually from those things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and what has been strangled and from blood. For, and this is why, this is why he says that. I'll get to what that means, and then he makes his argument. From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You're like, okay, what does that mean, bud? This is what it means. Um, so before we got here, you had all of these people who were Jewish that had grown up in the Jewish customs. For their whole life, all they knew was, Live by these laws. Live by these laws. Do these certain things. Be circumcised. 
Don't ever eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Eat only these foods. Don't eat those foods. And that's all they've ever known. So when they became a Christian, it's hard for them to stop doing those things. They realize, okay, I can eat food that's been sacrificed to, a, to an idol because there is no idol. There is only one God. Or I can eat bacon. But when they do it, when they get to it, they're like, ugh, because I've already always done it. I know it's not a gospel issue, but because I've never done this before, it just feels like I'm sinning. It feels like I'm sinning. For them, that's just a personal conviction. They're not, but because that's all they've ever known, it feels like it. Because Moses has been proclaimed to them from every Sabbath that they've ever lived. That's what it says in verse 21. So what he says puts back on the Gentiles. So Gentiles, when you're around those who are Jewish, who hold those views, here's what you could do. Out of love for them, this is the whole argument of 1 Corinthians 8. Out of love for them, don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. We know you can. 1 Corinthians 8 has already settled that. But don't do it. You don't have to do it. Just abstain from that. Don't eat food that's been strangled or is from blood. And then he adds that other one, which is common for all, which we'll come back to, is don't practice sexual immorality. Gentile came a very secular pagan thing, and it was, that was just rampant, especially in Corinth. It's rampant where they were. And it's like you, you have to adhere to God's laws for sexual ethics. You have to adhere to what God's plan is from Genesis chapter 2 and the way that we should operate as a Christian Sexually. Now we're going to come to all of that. So let's, let's look at these things that he says. First, I want you to see verse 14. To take a people from them for his name. When he said a people for his name, we can just go by that and be like, ah, whatever. But that's a huge phrase that all these people are very, very familiar with. Because in the Old Testament, over and over and over, the people of Israel are called a people for his name. Or a people set aside for the glory of God. The Israelites... The Jewish people <clears throat> are set aside for the glory of God. And then all of a sudden, James, Jesus' brother, is saying, guess what? Gentiles get to be a people for his name. Gentiles get to be a people for the glory of God. So when they hear this, they're thinking to themselves, wow, this is a huge statement. It's, it's, it's a bigly huge, right? It's a huge statement that this is um, saying that, oh, that was bad. But they're saying, um, the Gentiles now get to be a people for his name. They too can live for the glory of God. Now, when he gets to Amos, there's an important thing that's going on. When councils get together, they have to decide if their decision that they're making, um, the council has to make this decision based on some kind of authority. And it can't just be from the external evidence. The external evidence has happened. Gentiles are getting saved. What are we supposed to do with them? Look at that. That guy really seems to love Jesus. And, and all these girls, like everybody, there's the external evidence. God's doing something new. He's saving Gentiles. But if we're going to make the decision that they don't have to, uh, that, that's valid, that Gentiles should get saved and that they don't have to adhere to the Jewish law, we're, in order for the council to have authority that, that our conclusions are right, we can't just say it's based on the external evidence, but it also has to have, um, has to be backed by the prophetic word. It has to be in the scriptures. So James stands up and says, the external evidence is here. We're pretty sure that Gentiles are getting saved. But does the Bible say that's going to happen? Is the Bible demonstrating to us that that's what's going to happen and we shouldn't adhere these laws to them? And so that's why, right here, to make the council carry its correct authority in their decision, he quotes Amos chapter 9. And notice what he says. There's, there's two big points that he says. After this, I will return and I will, here it is, rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Remember the Old Testament, the Jews didn't follow Jesus, they lost it. They, I mean, they were decimated. And he says, I will, I will re rebuild that ruin that, of that tent of David, and I will restore it 
that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, that remnant, and all the Gentiles who are called by that name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. So the first thing we're seeing is God's promising to restore David's fallen tent. Israel's kind of falling into not being uh, the people of God, per se, because they don't have the city, they don't have a king, they, they feel like they're, they're kind of spread all apart. God's promising to restore all of that, and the fallen tent is being restored specifically by the resurrection of Jesus. It's not the way they thought, but it is. So David's tent is the people of God. God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that, and he is promising and keeping that promise that the restoration of David's tent is happening because of the resurrection. But not only that, here's where it gets awesome. In Amos chapter 9, God's promising that the Gentile remnant that has been promised in, Act, in Amos chapter 9 is actually coming to fruition now. The inclusion of the Gentiles is actually from the Old Testament prophetic that's going to happen. Here, here's the key. We could think that God's always just going to be saving the Jews. God's always going to be saving the Jews. Jesus dies, resurrects, and all of a sudden they go out. He's just for the Jews. And like Gentiles start getting saved and God kind of has this divine afterthought. Well, I guess I could save the Gentiles too. Sounds good. And that it wasn't his divine plan. And what, what James is saying, that's not the case. The salvation of the Gentiles was not a divine afterthought. Like, oh, look, it's working. It's instead, from the Old Testament, always, I'm going to save Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to be the remnant that will be a part of this. And so whenever it starts happening, we're looking back at the Scriptures and we're saying, yes, it's supposed to happen. So the Scriptures say that too. So this council, when we make this decision, is not only looking at the external evidence, but looking at the internal evidence of what we've seen in Scripture. And the decision that this council makes has absolute authority. Because the salvation of the Gentiles is not a divine afterthought. It's been the plan the whole time. So that's what he says, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by, man, by the name, says the Lord, who makes these things known. So the Gentiles are part of it. Those are the two big pieces that he has. So here's what James is in essence saying. That they must recognize and embrace the Gentile believers as now brothers and sisters in Christ and not add to the, to the code of faith, they can't add circumcision or any of the Jewish practices. It's the, the gospel is by faith and faith alone. But at the same time, he says this, having established the principle that salvation is by grace and through faith, faith alone, without any works of the law, he looks to them and he says, I appeal to you Gentile believers to respect the consciences of the Jewish people when this is all they've ever known by not um, taking partaking of food that have been sacrificed to idols and abstaining from those things that might offend them. And he talks about sexual morality. So the way we can apply that now is this. Uh, if there are people in our church who have consciences because of they've grown up in a legalistic South and they think that those things are bad, whatever they are, you can, drinking or rated R movies or whatever you want to put in there, if they think those things are bad, out of love for them, you don't weaken their conscience by doing those things around them. Out of love for them, you don't practice your liberties around them. You just, I love you more than my liberty. So I don't have to do it. When you're around them. You can practice your liberty another time if you want. But when you're around them, you don't. And this is the point that he points at, which is really shouldn't be up for debate. There, there's no, it's not, okay, that's a gray area. He looks at these people and he says, you also can't practice sexual morality. Now, the word sexual morality here in the Greek is just the word Porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. It's a big umbrella term, porneia. And it means you should not partake in any kind of pornography. 
For them, it wasn't like what we have, but you should not partake in any kind of pornography. Christians don't do that. That's not who they are. That's not what they've been saved to. If any of you are any kind of sexual morality and pornography, you don't do it. Christians should not have sex before marriage. That's sexual morality. You don't have sex before marriage. Christians should not have sex outside of marriage with other people. Christians stay true to only their wife or their husband. Christians should not have sex with other people that aren't their wife or their husband. And only wife or husband. So homosexuality would be wrong. All the things that fall underneath the big umbrella of sexual immorality, James is saying, you don't do that. Christians don't practice sexual morality. They live within the Bible's set parameters all the way back to Genesis 2. The Bible's set parameters on sexual ethics. And you don't do anything else besides that. Or it's sin. And you don't sin willingly. As 1 Corinthians says, shall I unite Jesus when we uh, partake in, in pornea, sexual morality? Shall I unite Jesus with a prostitute? Imagine that. The Bible says that every time men or women partake in any kind of sexual morality, they are willingly uniting Jesus Christ with a prostitute. Just think of that. That Jesus Christ, before he went to the cross, at some point in his life, as he's doing his public ministry, goes to a prostitute and sleeps with her. Wretched! Horrible! Never! We would, that, would, that would be the end of everything. And he's saying, every time you who are filled with the Holy Spirit unite yourself with any kind of form of pornography, you're uniting Jesus with a prostitute. May it never be, 1 Corinthians 6. So, he's very direct with them. These other things can be uh, gray areas of conscience, but not sexual morality. Christians, we don't do that. So as we go into conclusion, I want to ask a couple questions, specifically about fellowship. God wants us to have fellowship with one another. And so I'm going to ask it from both angles, because we all are going to come from either one of these angles. We're either super legalists at heart, and we don't want to be, or we're super libertarians at heart, and maybe we need to be pulled back. Libertarian is like, free to do whatever I want. Legalists look like, I never do anything wrong ever, because that's what God wants. And I want to I bring some balance to both of those things because fellowship is key for us. How can you exercise your freedoms? Here's the libertarian, you libertarians. How can you exercise your freedoms charitably with others, knowing that they might have convictions of certain things? And how can you, out of love, make fellowship more important than your liberty? Because it is. Fellowship with your fellow believers is more important than your liberty. So how can you love them well? Think of it in your community groups, think of it in your church at large, think of it in your get-togethers that you have on Saturdays, think of it in your, in your Christian friends that you have that might not be at Remedy Church. How can you make that more important than your liberty? That's the libertarians. But to the legalists, here's the other side. How can you carefully, winsomely, lovingly, not necessarily impose your gray area personal convictions on others that aren't in the Bible, that aren't hard lines? How can you not impose them on in such a way where you are making people hold to your gray areas? Now, again, there, there are some things that aren't gray areas, but there are some. There really are. What we are in danger of if we impose those things is adding to the gospel. And Paul wrote the letter of the Galatians to them, killing them for that. Knowing that there are some gray areas, we don't need to make our gray areas gospel issues if there truly aren't. So we, wanna, we don't want to add to the necessary things to the, to the fellowship. So 
What are those things that you think are so important that if they don't do those things, they can't be a part of the community that might not necessarily be gospel issues? And how can you lovingly not add those things to them? Because we need to make fellowship more important than the gray areas. Just like for the libertarians, we need to make fellowship more important than your liberties. So how can you incorporate these things in your life? How can you incorporate these things in your gospel communities? I think it's a huge question. I think you should discuss these things this week at your community groups. Now, uh, I want to end with one last thought, and we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. Here's how I think you can do it. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul tells us, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he builds his argument on the fact that we're supposed to love each other. And as he says that, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 8, at the very end, by your knowledge, a weak person can be destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So you may know that you're free to do these things, but if you practice these things in front of your brother who will be destroyed by you practicing it, remember Christ died for him just like he died for you. And you don't want to destroy, as it says, thus sinning against your brother and wounding his conscience when it's weak. When you do that, you sin against Christ. And then he says this, Therefore, if food that's been sacrificed to idols makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat. I'll just never eat meat. So you can fill in that thing that you love your liberty on and say, if it makes my brother stumble, have that heart that says, well, I don't have to do it then. I just don't have to do it. Why would you do that? Why would you choose to do that? Because, verse 9, you're so overwhelmed by the fact that Christ Jesus has cleansed your heart by faith. He's cleansed your heart. He's made you new. He's called you his son or daughter. He's forgiven every one of your sin. When you cried out to him in repentance and forgiveness, he answered you. Whenever you were an enemy, he chose you to be a part of his family and gave you the full Holy Spirit. Whenever you believed in him and were saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he saved you. And he loves you more than you could ever imagine. That's why you do these things. And the Lord's Supper is the place where we remember that. The Lord's Supper, where we take the bread and drink the cup, is where we remember that he gave his body, and his body was broken for us, and he shed his blood so our sins would be forgiven. And it's a place where we take the, the bread and take the cup and remember what Christ has done so that we preach the gospel to ourselves, so that we want to live a life of worship. Because now, we're a people for his name. You are a people now who lives for the glory of God. Every day, every action, every thought, you're a person who's been brought into the fold and you get the opportunity to be a person that lives for his name. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love, your mercy. Thank you for your gospel. I pray that it, should, it would overwhelm us, that we would never ever just be laissez-faire about it. We would never ever just be so used to it that it doesn't move us. Never be so used to it that it doesn't evoke emotions in us. But as we think on Christ's death for us, that there's nothing we have to do in order to have a right standing because it's all based on what Christ has done. Lord, that we would be moved. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper. God, I pray that we would, uh, we would think on the gospel deeply. And as we remember what you've done, that our hearts and minds would be refocused on the gospel as our only hope. We praise in Jesus' name.